Buner, and I uh, work at a marketing agency called Red Door Interactive, and I lead our social media team there. I don't necessarily act any different than I do at home or at church or really with my friends or anywhere else, but um, I go into work with the attitude of how can I love people, how can I serve people, of course, while I'm doing a good job at work and getting all the things done on my to-do list and my task list. As some of you know, I work with Whitney Gandera and we are, I think, the only believers in our workplace, or at least the only really vocal ones. They think I'm not a normal Christian or I'm an anomaly, those who know I'm a believer. and. You know, they think, oh, well, somehow, Anne, you're not like the others. The others are just weird. <laughs> and they kind of have a, a negative stereotype in their head about what it looks like. So when they're able to meet Whitney, that's really exciting because they see another person that's, you know, not what they consider the stereotypical Christian. I also pray for opportunities for spiritual conversations. It can get tricky in a workplace where there are a lot of unbelievers, and I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable, but I also am excited when it naturally comes up. One example of that that's kind of funny is the What Would Jesus Do, the WWJD, when the wristbands were really big, and we just started talking about that, and then someone was like, where did that even come from? And I was like, I have no idea where it started, but I think it was a youth group thing, or so we ended up looking up on Wikipedia to find the origin, and even we had a conversation about something specific that, hmm, what would Jesus do in that scenario? So it was a fun way to at least have a spiritual conversation without really any pressure, but get to talk about Jesus at work. One of the biggest challenges that I face in being a Christian in my workplace really has nothing to do with my workplace or the people, but more of I can get caught up in the ambition of things. And when I'm really focused on that, I forget all of the other people involved and I forget to um, look at them the way that Jesus does so over and over <laughs> God has to show me and remind me that my prayer needs to be help me to see people through your eyes today and when I do that the whole day looks a lot different. Alright, yeah. Well, uh, welcome. It's great to be here with you. This is the uh, final week of, of winter, actually. And so I know many of us are looking forward to uh, next week when spring begins and we can begin to thaw out here in San Diego. So uh, it's, it's uh, I know, it's been a long winter. Um, <laughs> We are, this week actually is, though, the final week also of our series called Go. And this series, we, we call it God's Call for Ordinary People in Everyday Life. And what we've been doing the last eight weeks is exploring the different scriptures that kind of remind us of that God has a call. He's called his people to participate with him in a mission here on earth. And the purpose of this series is that we want to explore the, the full story of what God wants from us. And we believe that it's more than just saying there's a select few who can go and be missionaries or, or evangelists or those who are kind of the select people that God wants. But no, he wants us all to participate with him in our normal lives and to participate in the call that he has. So that's what we've been exploring for the last uh, couple months and today, as we end it, what we're going to do is kind of look back at a couple of the verses that we've already looked at and, 
and, and add a few more. And just to remind ourselves of what does this look like as a church to participate in this and just kind of a final reminder that we want to be people, we want to be a community of people who are participating with, with what God is doing. So that's uh, where we're going today. And before we get started, pray with me as we begin. God, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for uh, the opportunity to live in a place uh, that always has great weather and uh, a great place to live. Um, but God, we... Um, we thank you for so many of your blessings, and we ask that you would help us to be people who, who can respond um, as we look at the world and, and learn how to be a, the flow, the blessings flow through us, God. And I pray right now as we end this series, God, that you would challenge all of us, including myself, and Lord, teach me as I speak right now. And ultimately, Lord, let this be about you and your name being lifted higher um, in our midst. So we thank you for this time and give it to you now. In your name, amen. The story of scripture begins, and we've talked before about the idea that when God created humanity, creates us in his likeness, in his image, he creates us with the purpose, and he he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And, And the point was that God made us in his image, and he wants us to fill and spread out throughout the earth, representing who he is. Uh, to the rest of creation. That's how, cre- that's how the story goes and, and what God, why God created humanity. And just a few chapters later, if you're studying your scripture, you'll find by chapter 11 of the book of Genesis, we find something a little different happen. We find a gathering of people uh, as humanity and the population grew. They began to kind of gather in these urban centers and archaeologists and anthropologists will confirm that that was happening in this region in the world. Basically, modern-day Iraq. Some call it the the cradle of civilization. It's where a lot of, uh, we see the very first cities are formed. And in Genesis chapter 11, we actually read of a story of these cities beginning to form and how people, more and more as a population grew, they started gathering together and finding that they could use all their skills and gifts together and, and, and there's strength in that. But what happened was we find that they are in their gathering together. They start to build these things and build these towers. We even have remnants of them today called ziggurats. And these ziggurats were these towers that they said were the gateway to heaven. And and the way it's worded in Genesis is we'll build this tower that reaches to the heavens. And they say, therefore, we can build this tower and then that will keep us all together so that we don't scatter out throughout the earth. So we'll build this tower and we'll make a name for ourselves and make our names great and stay here together around this place. And then we see God intervene. And it's just because 10 chapters earlier, God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth for my name. And in just 10 chapters, humanity said, no, let's gather together for our name. So God decides to intervene and he enters in to the equation And he says, look what, if they could do all of this together, imagine what more they'll accomplish. So let's confuse their language and scatter them throughout the earth. Now when he says that, in this he actually says, nothing will be impossible for them. And that's not saying they'll become gods and they'll become more powerful than me. But the principle that that we find in Genesis 11 is, as people more and more focused on themselves and all that they could do together, they would forget more and more about their creator God. So he says, You're, you, you guys are missing the point. So he scatters them throughout the earth. It is with this idea that we see this common theme go throughout Scripture. 
where God continually reminds us and uses people, we see him then use the nation of Israel to be an example of what he means to use one people to scatter and fill the earth representing God's name. The spread of Christianity was to be the same. And the point is that God has designed us to not just gather and be with each other, but to spread out, to scatter, representing his image. The word image actually in the Hebrew scriptures is a word also used for idol. It's almost as God has made us like little idols that represent him. And, and in the modern day word is for photograph. So it's like the way we, if we live perfectly as God has created us, it's like we're pictures of God throughout creation is the image that it's given to us. So that's what he's called us to. So when we read then about the life of Jesus, today what I want to do is explore some of the final words we have recorded in Jesus. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Because this idea of creating people to scatter is at the very heart of the mission that God has for us as his people. And in Matthew chapter 28, we have these kind of final words of Jesus as recorded by the author Matthew. And one other author, Luke, kind of, he uses the same basic idea as Jesus' final instructions on earth. And, and this is what he says in Je- Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus says this. It said, Jesus came up and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This morning, as we think about these final words of Jesus, the final instructions, the things that he wanted us to know before he departs, before he departed earth in in his earthly body, we want to explore these three verses to really ask the question, what is it that Jesus desires of us? Why, was, why were these the final instructions that he gives to his disciples? It must be pretty important. So what I want to do is just take these three verses and, and we're going to break it down a little bit and look at each part of it and, and kind of explore what that means for us now as followers of Jesus. And if you are here this morning you say, hey, I'm not a follower of Jesus, this is a great way for you to hear what Christianity is about and to see why we are crazy enough to gather together each week to encourage one another and to sing worship songs and to learn more about this God. And, and so we are glad you're here with us. So let's look at this these verses, but break them out a little bit to really explore, Jesus, what do you want from your followers? He starts off with this. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. It's important for us to begin understanding why Jesus says this first. Because these verses change dramatically without that statement. They change dramatically if Jesus just says, okay, go and make disciples of all the nations, but he leaves this part out. See, Jesus begins and says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. This is a theology or an understanding of God about his sovereignty, meaning that God is in control. And as followers of Jesus, it's important that we keep this in mind as we enter 
or as we leave this place and live our days with the mindset, understanding that God is in control. Now, I know many of you would probably agree with me and say, oh, I totally believe that. But how many of you turn on the news and you watch what's happening around the world and say, clearly God is in control? How many of you read stories and hear things about like organizations like ISIS? Or maybe you see the increasing antagonistic uh, or atheism that's becoming more and more antagonistic against those who have any faith. It's like new articles every day, and it's not just saying, oh, it's crazy you believe, but really trying to attack faith. There's a decline in morality, and there seems to be a world that now we say anything goes. It doesn't matter. Just live any way you want. And when we look at all that, and when you see that daily, how many of you see that and go, clearly God's in control? How many of you see that and say, well, yeah, I mean, Jesus still has authority. Now, we may believe it, but do we often actually really believe it? And so Jesus wants us to know absolutely that even with all of this happening, that all authority in heaven and on earth is in Jesus' hands. We are not entering the world in a losing battle. Now, does that mean that everyone we meet is going to become a Christian? No. Does it mean that everyone we meet is going to say, I'm so grateful for Jesus and all of his followers? No. But it means that we can enter the world knowing that God is in control, and if God is in control, guess who doesn't have to be? We don't have to be. Yes. So we can boldly live the way God has called us to live, and we don't have to worry about what the results are. We can trust that our God is sovereign. Now, in some ways, that sounds pretty easy. Others, it's pretty challenging. My wife and I have three boys. Our youngest is seven years old, and, uh, and all three are in, are in school here in Encinitas and some of the public schools. And our seven-year-old, he uh, has a group of friends that a great little group of friends. We love the families. We go camping with them. We're going again this year. And so we'd spend a lot of time together. But we are the only Christian family in that mix. And we're okay with that. But it's really challenging sometimes because our seven-year-old will ask us questions like, hey, why am I the only one of my friends who believes in Jesus? And it's not just that some of them aren't, not that they're not Christians, but he even has some who actually are anti-Christian. The parents have told us we don't want them to have any sort of faith at all, so please don't skew our kids in one direction or another. They literally told us that. We don't want them to get a positive view of Christianity because you're going to bias them to believe something. And, and so my seven-year-old son is asking us these kind of questions. Now, one response for us can be like, oh, this is going to be way too hard. Let's withdraw him from this situation now and protect him. But if we truly believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth in his hands and God is in control, then God is in control even of my son. Now, does that mean we're disengaged? Absolutely not. If, it actually means that we're more engaged, that we hang out with the families, that we open our home, that we do everything we can to give them a positive view of what Jesus' followers look like, and everything we can for our own children to show them what Jesus looks like. But even that is an act of faith, saying our kids are not living in a world where people are going to encourage their discipleship or following Jesus. <laughs> But if we truly believe that God is in control, he's even in control of that. And so it has to shape how we believe. And Jesus wants us to enter life not in fear, 
but knowing, wait, Jesus is on his throne. Another verse here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I have it up here for you. This is how Luke records Jesus' final words. He says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or the remotest part of the earth. So the way Luke records it is saying, Hey, you will be my witnesses all throughout the world, similar to go and make disciples of all the nations. And he said, But you will have the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of you begin your day? You get up, you get your cup of coffee, whatever it is, shower, whatever you do, and you begin your day and say, man, I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me today. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to me as I walk through the day. Nothing can get in my way because the power of the Holy Spirit's with me, and you just walk through your day like that. Now, maybe there are a few of you who are very good at that. I am not very good at reminding myself that every day. But if I am to believe scripture, and I do, then that is actually true of me. How different would our days be if we believed and reminded ourselves that the power of the Holy Spirit is in us? Do you walk through life in fear? Do you walk through life in despair? Do you forget that God is still on his throne? See, Jesus begins, before he tells us anything, he wants us to remember that this is his thing, his story. He's got this. We've got to be reminded of that. See, followers of Jesus can walk through life believing that we can believe that the world is not out of control. That Jesus still is on his throne. I love this verse in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. We have it here. And, and there's a, a really rich story around this, and we don't have time to get into all of it. But Jesus is speaking to, to Peter. Peter just said, hey, I believe that you are um, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And, and upon that testimony, Jesus says, because you said this, Peter, he says, I say that your name is Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And what's happening here is they're in a place where we've, we talked about a couple of years ago, but to refresh your memory for those of you who maybe weren't here, um, or, or you forget what we say when you walk out the door. Either way, so, um, <laughs> but it's a place where there's this sacrifices happening to Caesar and a sacrifice to a god Pan, and uh, there's also a lot of sexual immorality taking place there as a part of this cultic worship. And Jesus takes his disciples to this town, which is just crazy that he went there. And there's this huge, huge rock about 100 feet high um, where there's this split in the rock where the altar was. And they would do human sacrifices and throw them into this abyss. And Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and talking about building his church. His gathering of people who will be loyal to him and followers of him. And he says, I want you to know that upon this rock, in a place like this, with the testimony that you just gave, Peter, that I am the Son of God, upon this rock, I will build my church. Even in a place as evil and despairing and hopeless as this place we're actually in, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Do you know what they called that split in the rock at this place in Caesarea Philippi? It was called the Gates of Hades. It was this place when Jesus was making a very clear statement. Could you imagine how that must have felt even standing there, even looking at it, knowing that there's people who are being sacrificed there? 
the fear that must have been in the air and just the oppression you must have felt. And Jesus says, no, not even this will prevail or will eventually overcome my gathering of people who are loyal to me. Why? Because Jesus is still on His throne. See, Jesus comes with the promise of new life. Hopelessness, addiction, envy, selfishness, anger, rage, destructive behaviors and lies that we believe will not prevail. The hopelessness in this world will not prevail over Jesus Christ and His church. ISIS will not prevail over Jesus Christ and His church. Do we live with that belief in our minds all the time? Maybe in your own life, the issues are too great. You feel like it's too much. Oh, I'll never overcome this addiction. Oh, my friends will never overcome uh, what they're into. I'll never feel hope again. My relationships will never be restored. And, And we go through life thinking that all, there's no hope. But Jesus says, no, not even the gates of Hades, not even death itself can prevail against me and the word of my testimony. There is hope in Jesus and there is power that still exists for us today. So when we begin any sort of, Jesus wants us to know, any sort of mission from God has to begin with a belief that He is in control and you don't have to be. And that is the best thing you could hear this morning, I promise you. (laughs) That you don't have to be in control. Uh, I, I have on your outline, there's some, if you like to follow, there's some other verses that you can look on your own and study. There's some other verses about the Spirit and, and the power um, that is available to you. So Jesus begins and says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. So know that he's in control. Then the next part of his statement, he says, therefore, go and make disciples. Or a better translation is, in your going, as you go throughout your life, make disciples. And he says, of all the nations, which we'll get back to in a moment, but make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So Jesus, his next statement says, I'm in control of everything, and so therefore, because I'm in control, go throughout the world and help people become followers of me. Now he has a baptism in there. Baptism in the ancient world was a sign of conversion. It was a conversion from no faith to faith or conversion from Judaism into Christianity. For us today, baptism is also an outward sign of a conversion in our lives, of saying we want to be followers of Jesus, which, by the way, in two weeks we are doing a baptism. And we would love for you, if you have not taken this step, to be baptized. Even if you don't have all the answers yet. (laughs) Baptism is a sign saying, hey, I want to be a follower of Jesus or I am a follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, make disciples. Now what does that mean? First of all, let's understand the word disciple. A disciple essentially means a student. And a student in this context is, the goal of a student is to become like the teacher. To not only learn what the teacher knows, but to act and behave the way the teacher behaves. So when he says, make disciples, he's saying, go and help people become students of me, followers of me. Now, Jesus, being God in flesh, gave us a perfect picture of what it looked like to put the character of God on display. God came and lived in human body, and if we learned 
all the ways of Jesus and saw the way he lived, that's a perfect picture of what it looks like to bear the image of God. We fall short of that. But our goal is to be like that and to help others see what that looks like. So how do we make disciples? Here's just a couple thoughts. First of all, to make disciples, we need to be one. (laughs) It starts with that. To help people become a follower of Jesus, we need to first be followers of Jesus. Now I know a lot of you in here say, well, I am a follower of Jesus. Okay, good. I believe that. How often do you study the words and the ways of Jesus? How often do you try to put those things into action the way you live? See, followers of Jesus are people who know, who study and study and who read and and process and pray and say, I want to live my life the way Jesus lives his life. I know that that's the desire of my life and I don't always do it very well. But it's my desire. But it has to start by us understanding who Jesus is. We need to be studying the life of Jesus to get a perfect view of what that looks like. Now, some of you would say, well, who do I disciple? I don't have anyone to disciple. Any of us in here who are parents, who have kids at home, and probably even kids who are grown, guess what? You have disciples. (laughs) You have students who are ready to learn what it looks like to be Jesus. They're there, and you have plenty of time with them. (laughs) Now, in our life, our goal is to teach our kids how Jesus responds to certain situations. But I will tell you, sometimes I like to show my kids the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) so that they can see the contrast. Yeah, it's the only reason. (laughs) There are many times when we show our kids not what Jesus looks like, but then we have a great opportunity to follow up and to show them, actually, this is what it looks like to ask for forgiveness. This is what it looks like to still know we're imperfect, but we're being transformed. Even with the way they see my wife and I interact, they can see, oh, that's what what it looks like when two people are following Jesus, sometimes imperfectly, but they can see that there can be, there's restoration and there's hope. I often talk about my coaching. Sometimes you're making disciples with people who are not followers of Jesus yet. But when I'm coaching kids and, and their parents, they are looking at me knowing that I'm a follower of Jesus and they are seeing what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And the way I interact with them and their kids is showing them what it looks like. I'm teaching them. In a way, I'm even discipling them, showing them what Jesus looks like. Do I always do that perfectly? No. (laughs) The other day, we have a pretty good team. Um, We were out in the field. It was baseball. And um, we had two innings in a row where my 12-year-olds forgot how to play baseball. Um, I don't even know if they were wearing gloves the way they were playing. And, And so I called timeout and walked out to the mound and called my team together in the middle of the game. And I think you probably heard it from your home, no matter where you live in Encinitas. (laughs) As I asked them how many of them want to just go home right now and be done. (laughs) I'm not sure if that was the right way to ask it. And then I I told a few of them that I'm going to send them to the lower levels and trade them after the game. And and, um, (laughs) it was just a a moment of pure just Jesus coaching. (laughs) It was one of those moments when probably wasn't the way Jesus would have responded to the situation. Now, he may have just made them be able to make the plays. I don't know. But it depends on how bad he wanted to win. But um, so there was a moment when, oh, that probably wasn't the way Jesus would have coached. 
But what was great is, first of all, they started playing better after that, so it was effective. Um, But (laughs) the other thing was I got a chance to bring them back in and say, hey, I make errors sometimes too. You guys are better than this. Still believe in you. You guys are great. I picked you on this team for a reason. Now go, go get them. And I'm sorry that I blew it in front of you. Oh, that's what a follower of Jesus is, someone who can walk in humility. So we try to find those things. Now, so we want to study the life of Jesus. We want to become disciples. But now sometimes discipleship, you might say, it, I don't know if it's hard. Is it hard? Or maybe some of you say discipleship sounds like it costs too much. Look what Jesus says about it in Matthew chapter 16. He says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me or be a follower of mine, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So Jesus says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, guess what you have to give up? I don't know, just everything. (laughs) He calls us to his high form. Discipleship is not an easy thing. Now, some of our brothers and sisters who follow Christ across the globe are giving up their very lives. There's people in North Africa, people in uh, Central Asia, in the Middle East, some in the Far Far East Asian regions are giving up their lives to be a follower of Christ. Here in America... We don't give up our life to follow Christ. But let me ask you a few things. And this, I do want response. What do we give up to follow Christ? What does it mean to deny ourselves? What are the things that we will lose to gain? Give me some feedback here. Control. Yeah, we give up control. Friends sometimes, yeah. Yeah, we give up our selfish thoughts. Absolutely. Yeah. Time. We give up our time. Yeah. I I, I didn't hear that whole thing. Okay, yeah. So so you gave up something you enjoy doing because you're committed to um, gathering together with believers. Yeah. Sunday mornings are a great time to not be in church, to be hanging out, you know, walking on the beach and stuff. Yeah. Sometimes you give up part of that. There's no question. (laughs) Yeah. Is that true, William? (laughs) Yes, we give up the last word sometimes. Sometimes we give up the right to be right. Yeah. Money. Yeah. Anything else? Oh, we have another one. All right. Focusing above, not down here. More about God. Yes. Yeah, so we give up just, we give up kind of being the right to just focus on ourselves and walk through life thinking only of ourselves. Yeah. You see, we, Jesus calls us to a pretty big thing. You may not lose your life, but you lose life in different ways. But you know what? Jesus doesn't apologize for that. And I'm convinced that following Jesus, this is the best way to live, even giving up these things. Some of us, see, sometimes we think of discipleship or even joining in God's call has to be something big, like going to become a missionary or doing something really great. But discipleship is in those little details. It's those hard things. 
Oswald Chambers says it this way. It is instilled in us to think that we have to do exceptional things for God if we're his disciples. But we don't. We have to be exceptional in ordinary things, to be holy in the mean streets among mean people and surrounded by sordid sinners. And then he said, that that is not learned in five minutes. (laughs) So to be a disciple of Jesus, it's not about doing exceptional things or these big grand things. It's being exceptional or being different in normal things. And that's not something we learn in five minutes. This is a high calling that Jesus gives to us But it's one that being a disciple, that's what it's about. Now, some of you here might say, man, I am getting discouraged. This sounds too difficult. I love the way Brendan Manning talks about discipleship when he says this. He says, for for those who feel their lives are a grave disappointment to God, it requires enormous trust and reckless raging confidence to accept that the love of Christ Jesus knows no shadow of alteration or change. When Jesus said, come to me, all you, who are labor, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, he assumed that we will grow weary, discouraged, and disheartened along the way. These words are a touching testimony to the genuine humanness of Jesus. He had no romantic notion that the cost, about the cost of discipleship. Jesus knew that following him was as unsentimental as duty and as demanding as love. See, Jesus calls us to a high form of discipleship, to be his student, to live and act the way he acts, and he knows that that is a pretty thankless task a lot of times, and it's tough. And he knows we'll fail, but you cannot fall out of the reach of his love and his calling for you, even in those failures. And he says, no. I will take your burdens from you. I'll walk with you in this journey. And... Don't forget, I'm in control. So Jesus said, I've got all authority, so go and make disciples. Help others become followers of me. Again, there's a couple other verses for you there you can look at about discipleship. But so the first is, let's become disciples. And the second is this, find people in your life that you can either learn from and people you can teach, or both. We should always be learning from people. Discipleship is a process of learning what it means to be a follower of Christ in your context and teaching others to do the same. So when we're making disciples, make sure that you yourself are becoming a disciple, that you're learning about Jesus, you understand what that means, you're trying to put it into practice, and then walk with others in the journey who can, you can learn from and that you can teach. And there's a couple of verses, like I said, for you that you can look on your own that talk about that. And then the final part of this statement, when he says, all authority is given to me, so go and make disciples of all the nations. One thing we haven't talked a lot about in this series, we've focused a lot about here um, and how we can live out the ways of Jesus in everyday life. But let's not forget that the call that God has for his church is to make disciples of all the nations to the ends of the earth. That's why here at Seacoast, we are committed to global missions. That's why we're committed to helping spread the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Why we are investing in Africa and training leaders and, and, and building up people who are giving back in the name of Jesus. Because we're committed to being people who scatter. Now some of you maybe will have the opportunity and the call to go participate in some of the short-term missions to actually go. Some of you, it's probably a good idea that you don't go. <laughs> 
But you can go through your prayers. You can go through supporting that financially to make it happen. You can go through, through being people who are aware and just praying that God's name would be made known. So there's a lot of ways that you can go to all the nations. Why is this a big deal? Let's look at a few verses here. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. says this. He's calling his people. He says, I will make you a light to all the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. So God is concerned about his salvation or his saving arm reaching to the ends of the earth. God wants people to to be saved. He desires that none perish, but all come to the knowledge of His salvation. See, our Creator God loves His creation. That's why He wants us to go to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth includes local. Now you might say, that sounds kind of selfish, that God just wants His name known everywhere. But when we know that God is a gracious, loving God, and He wants us to go with His character, it's actually a very gracious thing. See, God's called us to be a community of people that puts God's rule, His dominion, on display in our own lives. One way He describes it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is related to going to all the ends of the earth. He's talking to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And get this right here. And in you or through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, God wants his name to be made known through his followers to the ends of the earth, but for what purpose? That they may experience the blessings of God. Not so that they could be controlled and, and, and manipulated or anything, but because when God's gracious rule is made known to the ends of the earth, that is a good thing to all the nations. It's a good thing. Think of all the things that followers of Jesus have done to the end, for the ends of the earth. How many children have been sponsored by followers of Jesus who say, we want to give money to help kids all around the world? I know one organization, Compassion International, has sponsored over 1.5 million children. And they're not even the largest organization. You have World Vision. You have all these other Christian organizations that are sponsoring kids and giving kids hope and, and life in an area where maybe they didn't have it. That's through people saying, we want to be a blessing to the ends of the earth because of what God has done for us. The spread of HIV and AIDS has been helped or prevented in large part because of the numbers of Christians around the world who said, we care and we'll do something about this. Clean water is being made available to people all over the world. Why? Because followers of Jesus are saying, this matters to our God. This is His creation. So blessings are flowing through Christians to the ends of the earth. Are non-Christians doing some of these things? Yes, they are. They are too. They're participating. But if you remove the Christian element from the world, I guarantee you a lot of these would never happen. When Hurricane Katrina hit a few years ago, I guess it's been more than a few years now, but when the, when the government took a few days to figure out what they were supposed to do, there was busloads of Christians jumping in cars and buses going and saying, we're going to do something to help, bringing food and water and going to do work right away. Because that's what happens when we say God has called us to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. We get involved. That's why Seacoast is involved in our community, why we care about our schools. 
why we're participating in, in a cleanup day at Ocean Knoll, why we're doing a mentoring program at Sunset High School, why we contribute to the Community Resource Center right here. Those are non-Christian organizations, but Christians who get involved, who get engaged, say, because God has called us to display His gracious rule and bring blessings to the ends of the earth, locally and all over. That's why we do this. Another verse in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, again, showing God's heart for the ends of the earth. It says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. See, our God knows he's the only one. And his heart is that the ends of the earth can know his gracious rule. That's why we care. We invite the worship team to start making their way up. And when it end our time by reading in Isaiah chapter 43. In Isaiah 43, uh, I think we have, yeah, we have this up here for you. 10 through 13 says this. You, and speaking of his followers, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. You are my servant whom I've chosen so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I the Lord, I'm the one, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who declared and saved and proclaimed, so that there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Who can change it? See, when we end our whole series here about being people who are called to go, I want us to end with this thought. That our God, there is none other like Him. There is no other place on heaven or earth where you will find hope other than in the Creator God. There is nowhere else that you will find uh, a possibility to, to engage with the Creator except for in the only one God. This should call us to worship. Why I want to end with this too is because here's the good news. This is not about us. If God is in control and He has all authority then it's about Him. If He's called us to participate in making followers of His, it's about Him. If it's to the ends of the earth, it's because He cares about His creation. See, we serve a God who's actually engaged and who cares. You won't find that in other faiths. We have a God who cares about His creation and has called us to participate and it's all about Him. So as we end our time here today, the what I want us to do is turn our hearts not on how can we become a great church, not on how can we reach our, our city so that we have double the amount of people. Do we want that to happen? Yeah, that would be so great. I would love to see that happen. Dale would love to see that happen in the next couple of years, to see all of us sitting next to people who have accepted Christ because they're seeing the love of Jesus through us. That would be amazing. But you know what? It's amazing because our God is good, not because we can become a cool church. It's all about serving the creator of the universe, and there's no one like him. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this time. And we pray, God, that you would speak uh, to us right now and just encourage our hearts as we end this series, Lord. And we pray that it can just be all about you, Lord. We're so grateful for who you are, we're grateful that there is no other God beside you. And so now, Lord, receive our worship. Receive our praise.
Lord, change our hearts. Get our focus off ourselves. Help us stand, fall, kneel, whatever it is, before your throne. Because you are good. So God, now, would you move in this place? Thank you for this time.